0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English, and today we are joined by Tish Harrison Warren. Tish is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, and the forthcoming book, Prayer in the Night, which is coming in January, but you can pre-order it now wherever you pre-order your books. She is also a monthly columnist for Christianity Today. You can find her articles in the New York Times, Religious News Service, Comment Magazine, and many other places. Tish, thanks for jumping onto the show today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: I didn't even ask you before we jump on. Do you prefer to be called Tish or Tish Harrison? Is this a two-name situation? <laughs> what, or, what what is the proper reference here?
0: So my first name is just Tish. Okay. And I was Tish Harrison, and then I got married, and I'm, my husband's last name is Warren, and so I just
1: have all three. Perfect. That's mm-hmm. great. That's the same situation for my wife. I just wanted to make sure that for the whole show, I didn't call you Tish. And you're like, it's actually Tish Harrison at the very end. That would have been terribly disappointing, right? Yeah.
0: No, your Tish is great.
1: Yeah. We just call call Kyle. Hey, you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I was once on a phone call with somebody who was talking about JT and they referred to him as Timothy the whole time.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> and at the
1: and at the end of a very
2: you long, you never
0: said you never said anything. Well, he
1: wasn't on the call. We Come were talking. We were. I was on a call with an, with this other guy, up, man. And he he kept calling. He's like, yeah, you know, uh, I know the podcast with uh, Timothy and Jen is going really well. I like <laughs> called him, Timothy many times, and at the end, I said, I don't. Are we talking about the same podcast? Because the podcast that I'm on is with a guy named JP. But uh, anyway, so I just didn't want to create the same mistake here. Um, Yeah, um, I
0: have been in situations like small groups and stuff where people call me Trish. Yeah. I don't don't correct them. And then it's like long and deep into our relationship. And I'm like... (laughs) I guess yep. I'm just Trish now. I mean, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. It feels too long. to. It feels like I can't correct it
3: now. That's how I became Jen. Did you guys know that? Really? No, I didn't know that. Oh, when I came to the village, I was Jennifer all three syllables my whole life. And um, Angie Likens, who was on staff at the time, told everybody my name was Jen, and I was embarrassed to correct it.
1: That is really
3: funny.
1: <laughs> wow, I did not I know that. On your books,
4: you yeah. put Jen.
3: Yeah, because it got so confusing to go back to my actual name. Mm. And so, like, Jeff Wilkin has always called me Jen. He was the only one. And then when everybody else started calling me that, he's like, that's it. I'm, not, I'm calling you Jennifer now. They took his name. So...
4: One of my so, Tish, you wonder-
3: might not want to stall on that. You might want to correct, yeah, it. correct it right <laughs> now. <Later. laughs>
4: one, one of the things that I miss about working at TVC with you, Jen, is all of the sticky notes in your office about how many ways people can misspell your last name. <laughs> You'd think there's one or two ways. There's about 40 ways that you mm-hmm. apparently can misspell yeah.
1: Wilkins. A lot of creativity yeah. there. Um, but we do have three W last names on the call. I just want to note that. W's, like, are we don't get a lot of attention, but with a Wilkin, a Warren, <laughs> and a Worley... I'm just mm-hmm. saying we've outnumbered you three to one on this call, JT.
4: Yeah, but if you turn the E to the side, it's basically mm-hmm. a W. Uh, now we're there. I'm curious,
1: Tish.
3: What? No one writes a book on this topic by accident. What okay. was it that made you want to write <laughs> this book?
0: Yeah. So this um this gets us off Genesis. Obviously, um I wish I could be like, well, I was studying Genesis one day, and, <laughs> and, but <laughs> that's not how it happened. Um, no. So I um didn't really want to write this book, but I I in 2017, um so liturgy liturgy of the ordinary, um Kyle was saying that, that he has read it with folks and that launched in 2016. In 2017, so then the next month from the launch, um, we moved across the country from Austin to Pittsburgh in the middle of January, very dark. Um, and a week later, my father passed away suddenly in Texas. And then we had, um, a miscarriage the next month. I got pregnant unexpectedly, really joyfully. And then we miscarried, um, had some medical fallout from that. And then surprisingly got pregnant the next month and had a long, hard pregnancy that was, um, always, kind of dicey and I was on bed rest for part of it. And then we lost our son in second trimester in July of that year. So the end of that year, I was exhausted and I didn't know. I had questions of how, how does, how, how can we know God in a dark world? Can we know God in a dark world? the question that I asked in the book that was sort of haunting me was if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening, because apparently we can't, then how do we trust God at all? So, um, I wrestled with that for a long time and felt like I didn't say, okay, I'm going to write a book about it. I actually wanted to write a book about another thing, very heady theological topic. Um, this was like in the next year. 2018 and I, and every time I sat down to write my heady book it felt like um, I needed to write this book I need to write a book mm-hmm. about um, dark God in the dark and um and I was like, oh, I don't want to. I just like I felt like I was just recovering, like I was just getting my breath back from all of that and I was like I don't want to have to go back and think about that and the heaviness of it and darkness like can I write a book about like you know theology or, I mean, my book is about theology, but a book that's a little, it's a, it's a little headier or even a little lighter, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lighter topic. But I, it just, at the end of the day, this was the book that, it, it at some point a book becomes like, um, you've had babies, Jen. There's like a point in labor where like, You're not in control anymore. Like Mm -hmm. this, this thing, this baby is coming out and hold (laughs) on. And that's a little bit how, that's a little bit how it felt like, okay, I got to write. This is, this is the book that's being born. So may as well run with that.
3: You've just made me wish that there were epidurals for writing books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wish that every day. (laughs) I wish that all the time.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, we're exploring Genesis 1 through 11 this season. And today we turn our attention to a question. uh, And the question aligns with uh, Tish's forthcoming book, which is, is God with us in the dark? And there are certainly dark places in the story of Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, I mean, arguably, Genesis 3 through 11 is a fairly dark situation all the way through. Uh, And so in light of that, we just felt like, you know what? We wanted to have Tish on the show. She's got this book coming out. that's kind of talking through some of those things. So let's just kind of sync up these two topics together. And so let's just begin here. In Genesis 3, we find out that humanity rebels against God. And in doing so, they find themselves experiencing separation from God. And this is the reality that subsequently all of humanity is born into. We inherit it. So just at a high level, is it possible to find God in a dark world? Tish, if somebody in Pittsburgh, somebody comes to you at the park and you're talking to them and they ask you, can we even know God in a dark world? Is it possible to find God in a dark world? Where do you even start talking about that? And maybe how does Genesis line up with that?
0: Yeah. So, um the only, the only way to the only place that we could possibly know God is in a dark world because that's the world we live in. So the question is, can we know God? Um, so we start with that, but, um, I think, uh, the question sort of underneath the question when people are asking that is, um, could God be good given that the world is dark? Um, So if we can know God, which is one question, that's a big question to begin with, then um, how can we trust God or assume that he's good or assume he's not malicious? How can we know anything about God? Um, And so, I mean, one one way that people sort of try to divine who God is, is to sort of... um, look at the world and the circumstances of the world. And so if I win a million dollars or it's usually something smaller, if I get a good parking spot or if my, um, friend who has cancer, he is healed. Um, then, you know, maybe that's evidence that God is good and that there's someone out there taking care of us. But if my friend dies of cancer or I, I, don't have enough money or we face a global pandemic or um then maybe that's evidence that there's no one out there taking care of us or if someone is out there maybe he or she or it isn't isn't good isn't trustworthy is malicious so what um the point is that this is this is something that folks can sort of try to look at outside circumstances and, and figure it out. But it becomes, I say in my book, like this becomes like some sort of cosmic poker game. Like I like, like, well, there's a like monarch migration. Well, there's Lyme disease, like well, there's beautiful baby is born. Well, this, this baby is like died. So, or, you know, it's the, it's, it's sort of like me bringing up everything good and beautiful in the world. And, and, but then you can counter that with, I mean, there's no, there's not, uh, there's just ample evidence of darkness in the world as well. So, so what's the answer? I mean, for, for Christians, we would, we're not given sort of a quote unquote reason for the darkness in the world. I mean, well, we're talking about Genesis and we will get there, but I mean, there's not a distinct sort of like, here's a tidy explanation. What we're given is a story, right? Mm-hmm. We're given the story of scripture and the story explains how there could be a God in a dark world, how we might know God. Um, so I say in the book, like we're not, Christianity never really gives like a, a, pat answer for pain or darkness, but it gives us the story, the story that we were not made for a world like this. The reason that it feels wrong is because it is wrong. Like we were created for a different world and, um, sin has brought brokenness in the world, but brought, brought, Brokenness in our own lives, but brokenness like and darkness in the world. Everything from, you know, tsunamis to coronavirus to the fight that I had with my daughter this week. Right, like that's all kind of part of this brokenness that we talk about. And then, of course, there's redemption through Jesus and restoration that the world will not always be dark. Right, that there will be things that right. But it's only in the context of this story, of the f- creation, fall, redemption, consummation that that we can make sense, or make sense isn't even the right word because it doesn't quite make sense. But that we could it kind of endure this mystery and um, that we could know God in the dark, right? So I don't. I think um, the question underneath that is sort of how do we know God? Period in any world, and second, given that there is darkness in the world, how would one ever trust that God that there's anyone out there looking out for us? Um, and I, I think that can only be found the the answer Christianity gives is the story, the story of the fall, but ultimately the story of Jesus's redemption.
3: Yeah. So you would say? I mean, we're it, it's interesting because I think this book is born out of your story, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and that's, you know, we talk all the time about he who tells the best story wins and, Mm -hmm. um, the Bible tells the best story and it's telling a story about God in the darkness. And so I think it's completely appropriate that your story is what was the impetus for driving you to this story and then giving the story to others who are, because none of us escapes, you know, these times in our, in our life where, um, where we're, we're brought into the darkness for, for the purpose, um, of seeing God more clearly.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, I talk in the book, I mean, I see this as a, as a pastor, even that. So I say early on in the book, like when, when everything falls apart, when Mm -hmm. all of our questions, and it's, it's totally normal to have questions, um, about God and who he is. That's what we bring these questions to the scriptures. And, um, so when the questions are roaring and loud, and doubts—I mean, I had a season of doubt was loud—and when we um, are struggling, and and when when we've suffered deep grief, um, or even ordinary grief—I mean, my book in many ways it's not. There's there's a, a just whole genre of Christian literature that's like catastrophic loss uh, Mm -hmm. people talking about losing spouses and children and there's some really really good and important books but my suffering was ordinary in some ways it was um moving which a lot of people have done and homesickness and miscarriages which one in four pregnancies and miscarriage and the loss of a parent, which is painful, but very, com- I mean, very common. So it's not a book about catastrophe as much as sort of how do we deal with the darkness that just sort of, that, you no, know, 100% of us will face mm-hmm. it, the best life. You know, you can have a relatively good life and still um, regularly, daily encounter darkness and the fall, like the fall, <laughs> the fall doesn't just affect those in deep tragedy or those in deep poverty, like the fall affects all of us. Um, not, maybe not the same, but it affects all of us. So all that to say, sorry, is that I think um, one one thing I say in the book is that when we are facing the brokenness of the world, what um, is inescapable is doctrine. And I think that that, uh, it depends on your, on your, church world. There's certain church worlds that get super, super into doctrine. And so they would be like, yeah, but a lot of times I think we think of doctrine as this sort of heavy, heady thing. And when we're really broken, that's like the farthest thing from what we need. And that in some sense, that's true. Like your friend who's suffering deep loss, don't give them like, you know, Hey, here's this, here's a systematic theology. Like that's prop, but at this, at the end of the day, what we ask when everything's fallen apart is who is God, and mm-hmm. how did we get here, and who are who are we, and those are all deeply like just they're questions underneath the questions, right? They that's the presuppositions of our life, and so that all depends on that all depends on a story. And, um, and so ultimately, I mean, NT Wright calls the Nicene Creed a portable narrative, like creed's doctrine. those are stories. they're derived from the story of scripture, right? They're quote unquote, portable narratives. And so, um, it's a way to take this big, big, big story and try to sort of like shrink it so we can make a sentence about it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the answer like the Christian answer to the darkness is a story but all of us whether you're a Christian or an atheist at the when you are in a place of deep vulnerability what you cling to is the stories you tell about right. who you are about who God is that's what shapes who you are in, your, in the darkest moments of our lives
2: Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold.
1: Yeah. I, gosh, there's a lot there. Uh. I I mean, part of me wants to spend time talking about the role of doctrine there. Part of me wants to spend time talking about the role of story there. But, you know, trying to kind of exercise some, like, canonical and biblical imagination about the role of seeking God in dark places. Like, as I was reading through Genesis 1 through 11 again in preparation for this episode today, I was thinking about, like, uh, Eve after the garden, with Cain and Abel out in the field and then hearing about the death. And then I was thinking about Noah in a a world of increasing corruption and thinking about like the kind of prayers that Eve prayed or the kind of prayers that Noah prayed. Just like looking around filled with doubt, like will the world ever be made whole again? Mm -hmm. I just think about Noah building the ark, like hammering stuff in, Like God telling him, like him seeing the wickedness grow across the earth, God telling him, I'm going to judge the wickedness, and Noah just building an ark and praying, probably just muttering breath prayers, probably sloppy with sweat, and just feeling like the kind of prayers Noah was praying in those moments, I would have to imagine, were pretty like honest, searching prayers about, God, is this really going to be it? Like, are all of my friends and neighbors going to be gone? Is this how, like, is, are they, are they all going to succumb to wickedness and unrighteousness? Are they all going to be judged? And so I guess, like, I think that experience of feeling doubt about the wholeness of the world or the prospect that the world can ever be me, me made whole again, uh, that's a, I think that's something that a lot of people feel. So, and I'm sure it's a part of how you felt when you were walking through some of those dark nights. I know it's a part of how I felt in Dark Nights of the Soul. JT, I know that you've talked about this. You and I have talked about this when we have both reckoned with the loss we've both experienced. I guess I'm just, I guess the question is like, how can you pray when you feel like I don't, I'm not even sure that the world is going to be made whole again? Yeah. Like, I'm not even sure that I, I'm not even sure that I trust that it's going to be made whole again because. My present circumstances, the past history of the world, and the future prospects Mm -hmm. look bleak.
0: Yeah. Well, those are great. That's a really good question. And just like you said, I feel like there's a lot that I could talk about there. So I'm going to pick two of the things. Maybe I should only pick one, but I'm picking two. So the first, I think... You're right. And naming that, like, when you read... Okay, so I'm going to tell a story, actually, from yesterday um, that's kind of funny, but it's illustrative of what you're saying. So I walk downstairs, and my seven-year-old, who's just rainbows and unicorns and light, like, like she just wants the world to be a happy place, right? Mm-hmm. She goes, Mom, we read the scariest story ever today. And at the end, and she whispers, someone dies. (laughs) And my 10-year-old goes, "Uh, Flannery, that's her name, my seven-year-old's name. "Uh, Flannery, it's called the Bible. (laughs) 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 And she she wasn't talking about Jesus. They read apparently the story of Absalom. Mm. Um, which, whoa, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so, but so much, when you read through Genesis, you're like, man, it's a violent, violent world. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, I think that that we can have sort of privilege as kind of middle-class Americans to be shielded from that. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the world is a profoundly, um, violent and wicked, broken place. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the scriptures aren't shielded from that. Like the scriptures are much more real about the brokenness in the world, the darkness often than the church has been right. Like the church can sort of be uncomfortable with um, that and try to make things seem, you know, if you follow God, like things will work out well for you. Or we can even, I mean, even if we don't say those things, even if we don't have like an overtly prosperity gospel idea, we can say, you know, God was in it and we almost always mean because it worked out well or because it was good, right? And not or we,
1: or we learned some sort of moral lesson through it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you know nobody nobody says God was in it. I mean in in the when you look at like horrific violence, right? and i I'm not saying God causes horrific violence. What I'm saying is that we in the church can can take God's presence to we want to um clean it up. we want to we want to sort of rescue God from the difficulty of this this thorny question of, how like how can things be like they are? And so we can sometimes make things we kind of make it a little more shiny than it actually is. But the scripture is so honest about violence and darkness. And my book's not about violence per se, but about just wickedness and darkness in the world. Enough so that when a seven year old reads it, they're like, "Whoa!" When they read the actual scripture and not and not a sanitized version, they're like, "Man, this is messed up, right?" And um, so I feel like you're getting at that. And so um, I think, first of all, I mean, what I talk about in my book, my book is framed around a prayer in Compline, um, which is nighttime prayers that Anglicans pray. And and part of the reason it's framed around that is because I kind of, at the end of this time, had a lot of night anxiety. Like during the day, I was pretty okay. But then at night when things would get quiet, I would sort of be alone with my questions, alone with my thoughts. And um, I struggled a lot at night um, and didn't really know how to pray. So what sort of kept me in the faith at that time? I felt like I couldn't pray. I didn't have the words. I didn't know what to say. Um, I was frustrated and I felt like I was asking questions that um, there weren't answers for. And so what sort of kept me in the way of Jesus at that time was Compline was like taking, it was like, these prayers are things I don't have to drum up. Like I don't have to get to an emotional place of like enough belief. Right. I can like receive these prayers and pray these, um, as an act of trust in a God I wasn't sure I trusted. Right. So, um, so I frame the whole book about one specific prayer in Compline, but it's it's talking about weeping and walking, weep. And this the the subtitle of the book is for those who work or watch or weep, um, and that's from the prayer. And so I think, um, but those three words have really formed by imagination around how do we keep walking in this world of darkness? How do you pray when you can't pray? Um, so some of it I think is receiving practices and prayers from the church that you don't have to come up with this on your own. Um, Thankfully we're not in the same place that Noah was right. Like we have, we have, we have revelation. We have the end of the story in the way he didn't, but, um, but we receive these practices from the church that have kept Christians in the way of Jesus through a war and plague and darkness and loss of family members. And um, so some of it is just taking up this craft of faith, like continuing to walk, like I continuing to walk in this way of faith, but also because the point is not just like keep doing it in a stoic way. The point is entering the story that we're talking about, getting the story into us that, um, and, but that how's that done well it's not just it's not done through primarily I would say like our cognition it's done through entering practices of the faith that shape our imagination with the story of scripture, right and so um so how do we walk through this dark how do we pray when we can't pray? we weep, we actually honestly confront the darkness. We don't try to minimize it or explain it. We actually can lament. And the scripture gives us a lot of ways to lament, right? So we lament, we weep, we watch, like we look for the work of God. And this means looking for it like in the scriptures through the life of Jesus and, but also through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you like noah eve in the midst of all this brokenness they knew there was a god and so they were their eyes were open for what is god where is god working like what is god doing and um ha, like where is the light in the darkness here and so i think we watch for that and watch for the ways I mean, the amazing thing about Genesis 3 and onward is not just that we seek God in the dark, but that God seeks us in the dark, that Mm -hmm. God comes after us over and over. When, When we run away, God just keeps coming after us. And so watching for the way that God is coming after you, watching for the way that God is out to get you in the best, most loving that that can be understood... And then we work like we we work towards the redemption that is promised to us in scripture. We 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 join God in his work is the best way to understand that God is the one redeeming the world and we join God in that. Um, So there is a sense of it's not just sort of a passive living through the darkness until we die and thank God that we, you know, done with this world. There is a sense that like heaven's breaking in and we get to be part of that. We get to be part of the work God is doing. So those are some ways, but I would say all of that is through living in the story, but we don't, but we do that through taking up the practices of the church.
4: One of the things I was literally talking to my wife about this last night as we've been walking through what has felt like a prolonged season of suffering, in whether it's us ourselves or close family members or close friends. And I mean, literally, we were sitting on the couch last night around the fire having almost this exact same conversation, which is just, I think, in God's providence. I get to have it again today um, that the story of scripture is really about and i'm not sure this is the right way to say it but it's a it helps us with a healthy resetting of expectations If that makes sense like it 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 tells us the true story of the world and so many of us want to live in false stories like progressivism or perfectionism or rational whatever we could go through a long list of You know indefinite stories but these stories create false expectations for us of of what we're going to live in our lives or what our kids are going to live or what our friends are going to live and as ministers of the gospel we have the opportunity through the story of scripture to reset people's expectations that there are times where the the utter violence and brokenness and fractured nature of our world comes crashing down on our lives and we aren't expecting it and it it feels like a foreign invasion and uh man we should celebrate when when life is good and when god is blessing us and when we're flourishing but at the same time the story of scripture has story after story after story of 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 the brokenness of the world crashing in on people's lives uh and darkness just kind of cascading down on our stories one of the things kyle said uh to me this is gosh maybe four years ago kyle i think i don't know if you said it to me first or said it in the training program but i we were walking through an intense season of suffering and he said, we shout truth about God in the light so we can stand on truths about God in the dark. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about here, Tish, whether it is doctrine and theology or it's the formative practices that the story cultivates for us, we we participate in the true story of the world by, by doing that always not just when it's dark so that when it is dark and it will be dark for all of us we're able to stand on the nature and character of who god is and the story of what he's doing in the world through christ
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think i don't know i don't have a ton to add to that i would say amen first of all amen and i think second um About living in other stories. I mean, we were so we're so so shaped. All of us in America, I think, are really shaped by consumerism. Of, of if you we can you can make your life right like this Mm -hmm. product or this Mm -hmm. invention or this technology or this political candidate like will set will bring the king like this this will make it so. And I think I mentioned at the end of the book, I had a, a good friend. All of us. I don't know if I should. I'll just tell you who he is. I don't, I guess that's okay. It, but it was, it's Andy Crouch. I don't quote him in the book. I just say like, a leader that studies the church closely. But I was talking <laughs> to Andy during all of this period of struggle in my life. And and he just really offhandedly, like we were, we it was like on our way to another conversation, said, you know, we all in America pretty much believe the prosperity gospel. Like, okay. Whether we do or not, we all kind of think that if we do our part, um, that the world should work out for us well. And mm-hmm. there's some, and then if we, if the world's not working out for us or someone else, well, that we've done something wrong. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a always just a little bit. I think we're just shaped by that, right? It's part of the American dream. Is part of that. We're just shaped by it. Mm-hmm. And so these stories of the culture. Things like the American Dream and consumerism and the prosperity gospel get in us, even if we're in the church. And that's why I'm saying it's not—it's mm-hmm. co- not primarily our cognition. I can stand and say the Nicene Creed or, re- or recite Scripture, right? But what um, I'm at, what my imagination has been shaped by, is this like subtle prosperity gospel mm-hmm. or subtle consumerism even consumerism of faith, right? That Jesus is going to help my dreams, my American dream come true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jesus is necessary for our American dream to come true, right? Um, like Jesus's chief job is to make my life great. And that's what Jesus is up to. And um, I think we that's infected all of us. Like it, it gets in through our imagination and through the way we see the world and our good and the good life, whatever we profess. And so, entering constantly into the practices of the church that draw us into Scripture that that, that challenge these kind of narratives we pick up, I think is really, really important. And the fact is, like we will have times of deep, deep darkness, but even in the bright times, even in the light times, darkness, like the fall is always there. And um, I think probably every single listener right now, the person who's had, who's just had the best day and just got a promotion or the person who just lost their job and is struggling with grief. Like if they think about their life, there is a relationship that's broken in it, or there is a frustration in it, or there is something that they feel like they, they want to do, or they want to grasp that they can't like that they they can't, they can't because of their own weakness or the weakness of the world or, so, or even just systems of darkness. I mean, as we sit on this call, there are, there are people enslaved, like there's human trafficking happening, whether we think about it or not, it's there and, and probably part of the computers that we're talking on like like part of the form- the process of making the equipment for the computer so all that to say like the darkness is just this unavoidable thing it's not it's it's always there so we constantly we just constantly have to have this conversation as christians we we constantly have to talk about how god can be good in a world that is not, a world that isn't, that is ultimately good, but that is broken.
4: Just, just maybe to, to, I know you want to close up here pretty soon, Kyle, but a, a passage that was really meaningful to me, of course, it's meaningful uh, to the history of the church, but Psalm 23 makes that point real clearly where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And often God draws near to his people uh, in the midst of their deepest suffering and darkness. And he does it through
1: his people. He does it through the story of Scripture and through the church. Yeah. it's good. I'm glad he's with us. I'm glad he goes with us and before us. I really am. And Tish, I'm grateful for your work. I've told people, and, and listen, if you have not read Liturgy of the Ordinary Read it. Yeah. Go get it now. <laughs> and I'll and I'll tell you if if this forthcoming book is half as good as Liturgy of the Ordinary, it'll be worth double whatever you pay for it. Uh, and we're not getting any plugs for that endorsement at all. It's just, that's <laughs> Aww, how good thanks, Kyle. That, That's how good Liturgy of the Ordinary is. And so Tish, thank you for joining us today. If you want to join the conversation for Knowing Faith, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Faith. In our next episode, we'll chat about hard questions in the book of Genesis with Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. So hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.